This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. back with another fun-filled episode of Art of Darkness, your favorite podcast about uh, the dark side of <laughs> the dark side of artists. And the crowd goes wild. People. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Kevin, I, I'm Brad Kelly. Uh, this is Kevin Kautzman. Kevin, how are you doing? I am doing super. Spring Excellent. has sprung in beautiful St. Paul, Minnesota. And I am ready to podcast yeah. in the middle of the afternoon. Usually we do this in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. We're going into continental podcast. That's right. Yeah. That's right. right. Who do we have? Who's joining us? We have a friend of the show, Hagulian, who uh, joined us to talk about Kafka some time back. And he has come, uh, he's returned uh, to help us discuss a writer from England. Uh, and I'm not going to say anything more, Kevin, because I'm going to, and we'll, we'll, we'll throw it to, to Hagulian here in a moment. But we got to start with our, our first question. We're talking about Robert Aikman. Kevin, what do you know about Robert Aikman? Not a thing. <laughs> I know <laughs> his name is Robert Aikman, yeah. Yeah. and he is a writer. I have mm-hmm. seen on your fabulously curated bird website account for Art of Darkness at Art of Dark Pod. That's awesome. I have seen you put up bits and bobs, mm-hmm. but I have sort of on purpose not I've I've looked away because yeah. I, I want to come in cold because that's part of the fun of this show. Correct. Depending on the episode, you bring the subject to to me and, mm-hmm. and I get to play the foil and yeah. vice versa. And in this yeah. case, I get to have an education mm-hmm. almost from scratch. So Excellent. I'm very excited. Excellent. I, I kind of knew that was the case. And so in our conversations that we were having about this, that, and the other leading up to this, I tried to avoid spoiling it for you. Um, so yeah, uh, what you do know about him is correct though. Yes, he's a, <laughs> he is a writer. Um, I'm going to throw it, I, I'm going to let Hagulian tell us who this guy is. Who, who is Robert Aikman? Okay, thanks for that yeah. <laughs> intro, Brad. Yeah. And thanks for inviting me back. Of that. course, and I should have given you a more proper introduction. Uh, Hagulian is um, one of my favorite Twitter followers, by the way, and not only mine, but the, the favorite Twitter follow of many people. Um, follow him at Hagulian. Of course, we'll have the links. He has a wonderful, a wonderful Substack that you should be digging into. One of the most incisive uh, commentators on, uh, well, any matters in which terminally online people like to uh, dip their toes. So um, thank you for, for coming and, and, and spending some time with us and, and enlightening us on this matter. Okay, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, so about Aikman then, Robert Aikman. He was born in 1914. He was an English writer. Um, he's famous for his, what he called, strange stories. 
And he wrote about quite a lot of them, about 48, I think, strange stories uh, over the course of about 30 years, from about 1950 to 1980. He died in 1981. And I first discovered him, uh, it was about six years ago. And it's kind of curious that I only discovered him then because I've always been interested in kind of the weird, really, you know, weird stories mm -hmm. uh, and the weird fiction. Uh, I read the Lovecraft when I was about 18. So I don't, don't know why I never discovered Aikman until recently, really. But anyway, um, what are his stories about? Well, one of the first stories I read by Aikman has got the title of The Swords. Now, Aikman himself was a kind of upper middle class fella, really, um, with, I would say, opinions and tastes, you know, to match that. And he, he also moved in some, some kind of aristocratic circles. But uh, The Swords is rather based on a sort of a lower middle class or working class milieu. And it's about a young man. We don't know exactly when the story is set, but it seems to be maybe the 60s, I guess, early 60s, perhaps. Uh, it's about a young man who goes into a family business and he, uh, he, he's working for his uncle, sort of uh, doing a lot of traveling around the country, selling his uncle's vegetables. <laughs> and he gets sent uh, in the story to Wolverhampton. <laughs> if you've ever been to Wolverhampton. But it's, it's in the Midlands. It's a kind of... It is a real place. It's a real place. Okay. It's, it's a sort of provincial town. And if you know provincial towns in England, they can be rather dreary and sort of forlorn places. <laughs> <laughs> no, no uh, offense to any listeners. Yes. <laughs> Rains an awful lot. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, he gets sent on these, on these journeys. He gets sent to various kind of boardings, you know, sort of bed and breakfast type affairs, which uh, he suspects these, these, the women who run these establishments are his uncles, you know, fancy women, <laughs> as they used to say. Ah, <laughs> uh, um, okay. But anyway, he, and he, he gets to Wolverhampton and he's kind of very bored. Uh, he calls himself, um, I think, gr green as a spring onion. He doesn't know anything about life. But, and, and so I'll, I'll call him our spring onion. And so our spring onion heads out into the Wolverhampton uh, one, one evening. And he's wandering about the kind of uh, the, the, the rundown part of the town. And he chances upon a sort of traveling fair, quite small. Uh, near, near a bunch of, near a canal and, and a few factories. And there's hardly anyone there, just a few kids hanging about. Um, he, he's kind of intrigued a little bit by, by this fair. He wanders in and he finds a, a sort of a tent there, very dirty looking kind of canvas flap, you know, which you can sort of pull back and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a young man there, you know, inviting him in. And, and there's, a, there's a sign up which says the swords, you know, that's the kind of what's inside, the swords, and that's it, that's all it says. So he goes in, and I'm, not, I'm not just going to give you the, a brief sketch of what's, what happens in the story, but mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of like a, like, a, like a novelty act inside where there's a, there's a young woman up on the stage, and she's kind of pretty, but she's, she looks ill, you know, she's kind oh. of sat, sat on a chair very pale and with some sort of ghastly green powder. Um, and she's, she's, she's been sort of, I don't know, introduced to the audience by, by this kind of burly seaman looking fellow, like a middle-aged seaman. 
And uh, in the audience is about, he, he counts that there's exactly seven men, kind of, kind of like seedy looking men in the audience, just sort of scattered about on chairs. And, and there's a pile of swords in front of the stage, about 30 or 40 swords. So, 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 so our, our spring onion sits down and he, he start, you know, he's watching the show and, uh, and the seaman invites somebody to come up and take a first turn. And this, this seaman is rather, as he says, kind of truculent, like he, he wants to pick a fight almost, it seems, with the audience. So, so it's got this kind of wonderful sort of seedy atmosphere really, um, the whole story, but in particular, this, this novelty act, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so they come up, one of them comes up, after much kind of encouragement and conjoling by this seaman, and he's, and he's invited to pick up a sword and, and stick it in this girl. Yeah. Of course, he doesn't want to do it immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's ghastly. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> But anyway, he eventually he does. You know, this this man, not 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 our hero, but this this other man. Right. And uh, and and you know, this our, our hero, our spring onion. He he says he hears very distinctly the sound of this, you know, this ghastly sound of the sword going in and Ugh. then coming out again. But he can't see any blood. Mm. And anyway, the, 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 it carries on like that with a number. Of, uh, also, uh, by the way, I should say that every man gets a chance to kiss the girl afterwards. So they become much more enthusiastic after this, obviously. Right, right, right. But, but our spring onion decides to leave, actually, before it's his turn. I won't go into more of the story, but anyway, yeah. this gives, it gives you an idea of the flavor of the story. That, um, you know, yeah, there's kind of a story about the inexplicable and about aspects of British life, you might say, kind of like a social milieu here, you know, social classism. Mm-hmm. Um, aspects of that which obviously Aitman observed with a keen eye, kind of given a very surreal twist, really. Mm. Um, yeah. and, uh, and this, I, I, I can talk a bit more about some other stories, but, you know, this is kind of the essence of Aitman for me, that the stories are about the, the kind of impossibility, in a way, of, of understanding the world, really, in, in, mm-hmm. in the final analysis. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's something that stuck out to me, like, with Aikman, as opposed to somebody like Lovecraft, who you mentioned, and is some, sometimes kind of, they're put in a similar lineage. Um, Lovecraft stories, once you buy into the, the pre, preconceptions or the the, pers- the precepts of a Lovecraft story, they make sense. Right. Eight stories don't necessarily make sense. You're very much left with this like, wait, wait, what? It's like, <laughs> meta- yeah. like pure metaphor or, or a symbol. It reminds me of Lynch. Yeah. It reminds There's, me of yes. uh, the Elephant Man somehow. Yes. It's yeah. very, I would say it's very Lynchian, but I, that would be my experience with a, with a, with a bit of a, an English flair, I think, if that's fair to say, like a, a little bit more, if Lynch were born, were born in London, um, these are the kinds of things he, he might've, he might've come up with, with the same brain, you know? Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, uh, Eggman was very, was very English for mm-hmm. sure. And, mm-hmm. and he, um, this is another aspect of his stories. I think is the kind of, the attention to detail of the sort of spirit of place, you know, he wants to try and capture those places. As I say, Wolverhampton in the Midlands. Um, by the way, I, I first encountered this story 
through Reese uh, Shearsmith's uh, wonderful audiobook versions. Okay. Um, and he really brings it to life. I mean, it's already you know brilliant story, but the way he does, you know, the, the kind of uh, the voices of some of the characters as well is excellent. Uh, if you don't know Reese Shearsmith, he was um, he he became most famous, I guess, for his uh, involvement in the League of Gentlemen which is a, a, a British comedy series of the late 90s, mm-hmm. um, which itself is a bit Aikman-esque. It's kind of set in a, um, a northern town, you know, it's a fictional town called Royston Basie, where everyone is a kind of grotesque freak. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think I came across that, the League of Gentlemen, which I wasn't aware of in, in my research, and, and that, that gentleman too. Yeah, he's, he's, he's certainly, Aikman has certainly left a, a, a little there's a bit of an echo of him i think and, and and maybe his career is kind of resurging well he's passed but but attention you know he's one of these people who's being somewhat rediscovered it seems like i think that's right yeah i yeah. mean in the past sort of half decade maybe he's mm-hmm. he's he has become to the attention of a lot more people yeah um a couple of the other stories then uh, i could mention mm-hmm. the most famous probably is called the hospice uh, which was turned into a little film, I think, a BBC film, which you can find on YouTube. It's pretty good, actually. Uh, I watched it. It's actually not mm-hmm, bad. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, it's pretty decent. That. Mm-hmm. The Hospice is about a um, businessman. Um, no, in all the Bateman stories, they kind of start off in a very kind of normal, I don't know, sequence of events, really, mm-hmm. um, which suddenly kind of takes a turn for the strange, you know, kind of things the conventional order suddenly breaks down in some way, which is almost, which is almost never explained, really. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we have a businessman who leaves his uh, premises, or he's either a businessman or a white-collar worker. Anyway, he leaves his premises on the way. Uh, I think he's going home, but he's advised that there's some kind of shortcut. So he's, he's driving. Uh, and anyway, this shortcut leaves him lost, of course, as, as the, the light is fade, you know, fading away, failing. No, no and Google Maps available no. on his phone. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> just wandering around the motorway. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. ends up in some kind of residential, I don't know, r- uh, streets where, where the houses are set well back from the, from the road. He gets out. I think he wants to kind of try and get his bearings of walking. So it's already dark. And a, a cat kind of springs out at him and, and scratches him mm. quite badly on the leg. Um, and, and he starts to feel a bit faint. Um, then he, 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 he tries to look for them, some kind of place to stay for the night. And he, and he chances upon this kind of, I don't know, inn, I guess, um, which is, you know, the hospice of retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes in there. And he notices that it's very hot in there, like the heating is turned up too high. And there's a kind of dining room where there's lots of people there who seem very, very listless and kind of they don't like they don't really know what's going on. Yeah, but they're all you, eating. Yeah. One one thing, hospice hospice is where you go to die, right? Right. <laughs> okay, okay. I didn't know if it maybe had a slightly different the definition was slightly different. That uh, is one. I think that's one meaning. I'm not sure it's the okay. only meaning. Okay. Yeah. Uh. yeah. He, he, but he notices that these people are sort of dining on some, you know, kind of a lot of food. Yeah. Um, 
and that's curiously chained up right by the ankles. Oh, that's... Um, uh... <laughs> and there's some kind of... Uh, there's, there's a man who's, who's the kind of... Uh, you know, the, 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 in charge of the establishment. And there's also a woman who we, who we encounters, uh, our businessman. And this is where, I guess, Eggman shows up his flair for eroticism. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of... Uh, and it's not sort of overdone. I mean, he sort of teases you a bit, I think, um, you know, which was probably reflective of his, his, his generation. You know, he prefers to, to give you a bit of a tease than to, to do something too explicit. But anyway, this man ends up staying at this strange place and meeting various characters there. And, and kind of asking, you know, what, what is this place? Has he actually died? You know, is that right, how he right. died somehow? You right. know? Um, has he crossed into some other realm? Um, so yeah, that's that's a uh, hospice. Yeah, um, of the stories I've read, and I didn't read all forty-eight of his stories in preparation for this, but the hospice was the one that, to me, was the. It, it wasn't even actually quite my favorite, but it was the most disturbing to me. Um, and I, I mean, we kind of touched on those reasons why, but that one actually gave me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> some more, a little bit more so than some of the... Oh, I got the... Oh, the hostess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, well, they're cramming... Well, they're making him eat these huge quantities of food, which is unsettling. And they're chained up and kind yeah. of out of whack. It's interesting yeah. because I don't know these stories, and yeah. yet... Haguni and the way you're describing them, they're such powerful little vignettes. Like mm-hmm. I can see the turn and I can feel the vibe, but I wonder what the prose is like. I'm going to have to find out. I'm going to yeah. have to go and read some Aikman after this. Yeah. 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 Um, I would say he's, you know, Aikman is a very literary writer. Mm-hmm. You know, and his, the standard of his prose is well above, I would say, the usual horror writer. Or, yeah, or I think that's fair. Writer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in there. You know, there's a lot, many observations in there about kind of English life of, of sort of mid 20th century. Um, you know, quite beyond you know the, the, the sort of supernatural aspects or paranormal aspects. Um, so yeah, there are many reasons to read Eggman, I think. Um, and one of in one thing that's interesting, just while we're kind of talking about that, that I found from a kind of a writerly perspective of how he's accomplishing these effects is I think part of it is he has this, uh, he's setting you in a very normal scenario, almost a a pedestrian kind of lifestyle in a way. Like none of his main characters are extraordinary people or anything. They're sort of just normal. It's, it's like a twilight zone episode in that way. You know, everybody's a 35 year old middle manager or whatever, (laughs) you know? And then what makes them unsettling is then, because as soon as you make that surface, so conventional then anything you do to it is a little unnerving right any you you don't have to do a whole lot to make it strip feel strange and defamiliarized and i think he's he's a master of doing that of you know it's a it's a totally normal summer day but why is it so quiet you know that that kind of thing i was really impressed by that yeah Yeah. um i mean we know a bit about england's uh views which you're going to talk about later mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly he was very mm, disdainful of i think sort of rationalist you know attempts to understand 
um, the world, really, mm-hmm. and, and particularly the you know modern fads or, or explaining things through you know, scientism and, mm-hmm. and so on. And I think you know his his stories have a, I think a sort of a purpose in, in, in some sense. You know that he wanted to to attack certain things which he didn't like. You know about about the twentieth century. Um, and, he, and he does that, you know, his voice is always present in the stories, I think. And he doesn't hold back from giving some kind of opinions <laughs> from right. time to time. Right. And you can sense that they are his opinions. Mm-hmm. opinions. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, maybe now is a good time to just kind of get a little deeper into the biography. Um, and we'll, I think maybe we'll kind of pepper in some other short story stuff as mm-hmm. we go. Um, so he's born, as you said, 1914. Um, dies in 1981. Um, just kind of backing up a little bit. I mean, one thing that's interesting about him is his grandfather um, was Richard Marsh, who was a writer in his own right, who uh, his novel, uh, sort of supernatural horror kind of novel uh, called The Beetle was published the same year as Bram Stoker's Dracula, but was uh, sold much more than Bram Stoker's Dracula, Dracula right off the bat. So his his Richard Marsh was a bit of a heavy in the genre fiction world. Um, he uh, his uh, Aikman's father met Richard Marsh um, at the Continental Club, I believe, or one of these country clubs. Uh, Robert Aikman's father was a was an architect of a architect of some renown. Um, he meets Richard Marsh and eventually re- meets Richard Marsh's daughter, um, who is, I think, 20 or th- uh, actually close to 30 years younger than he is. So Aikman's father is 53 or so um, when Robert, a- when, when he marries uh, Violet Mabel and when they get, uh, when they have a child. So um, Robert Aikman starts out, parents are 30 years age difference. His father is a, um, is a, is a well-known and well-respected architect, but is a man who is uh, rapidly becoming more eccentric, which was, was pretty interesting. He, would, he was like famously late. He would show up six hours after a meeting was supposed to happen with no explanation. Right? <laughs> they love that <laughs> they in England. Do. They love it, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and it was one of these marriages. So part of the reason that the marriage happened um, there is some lore that uh, Aikman's mother and father basically were intimate one time, and that was when uh, that was when Robert Aikman was conceived. Now that may be an exaggeration, but usually when that kind of story pops up, it's at least indicative that there wasn't much intimacy, right? You so get, you get called up to the majors, yeah, one time you're gonna yeah. pinch it, yeah. bases are loaded. Right. Out right. of the park. Out of the park. Knock it Grand out of the park. slam. Right. And then, <laughs> and then they never hear from you again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. there's, right. Can, can I say something? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, according to, according to Aikman, uh, Robert Aikman, <clears throat> in, his, in his autobiography, the first one, mm-hmm. um, The Attempted Rescue, he says his father was the strangest man he ever knew. Yes. And according, I mean, we don't know how much of the, the autobiography is true, I guess, but he says that his mother, there's a Mabel Violet that she um, she didn't know how old um, oh. her father was. Richard, um, sorry, there's a William. How old William was mm-hmm. uh, until the wedding day? You know, oh, because because he had a curious quality that 
he was kind of like of no particular you know age visibly yeah, that he could be yeah, any there, are, age pe- there are people like that yeah, yeah. where you, it's very difficult to tell yeah. Um, yeah and so he you know and he never admitted it right but he never admitted his age but he was forced to, to write down his you know date of birth um, right, on right. The, on the, on oh, the could you imagine? You're like, you're 53 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so this I, is when you find yeah. out. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that they got married, my understanding from reading this stuff, and, and there's a few sources we're using here. One um, is an attempted uh, biography uh, or an attempted autobiography, I guess, which Robert Aikman wrote. Um, famously left huge gaps in the discussion of his own life. He he later wrote another autobiography that famously left other gaps. So it's a little difficult to tell what's real, what's not, what you know, what's in the in the gaps. Um, we also rely on a fairly recent, pretty well done biography um, called an attempted biography. Um, uh, by R.B. Russell. It's from Tartarus Press, which is that great press that has kind of kept the, the, the Robert Aikman story alive. But one thing I kind of gathered from the R.B. Russell biography was that the reason that Robert Aikman's parents got married in, in some sense was um, his father, Robert Aikman's father, was a bit of a playboy um, and was at Richard Marsh's house and kind of just flirted with his daughter. But because of social conventions, you can't just flirt with somebody like brazenly and then just walk away with no entanglements. So the sense that I got was, was he sort of wasn't particularly interested in her, but kind of set himself up for this by, by, you know, being a little, being a cad basically and, and, and sort of flirting with her and then uh oh now you're basically have to marry her or you you know you're it's like a, it's like arrested <laughs> development i've made a terrible mistake right 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 yeah you probably just made some comments you know just being friendly right. <laughs> right so so inevitably robert is born um his mother had a rough pregnancy and and he apparently suffered infantile diarrhea so badly that he almost died um uh his mother was quite ill and so he had to be bottle bottle fed and you know uh, it, it wasn't a very auspicious beginning for for our hero robert aikman um the family was, you know, reasonably well off to begin with, but this is 1914. We're headed, you know, very quickly. We're headed into World War One. His father is becoming increasingly eccentric and 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 uh, you know unprofessional, you might say. So so the 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 stand the financial standing and reputational standing of the family is kind of already starting to dwindle. Um, Robert Aikman has, you know, by all accounts. Um, I don't even know. Want to say a, a, a normal childhood, but but um, not incredibly remarkable one way or the other. He seemed to play it up later in his own biography and in other places and letters and things that he was, you know, more depressed and distressed um, than, than maybe he actually was. It's you know not clear, but he did end up going to um, Highgate for high school, which, to my understanding, is at least at the time and maybe still is. Um, you know, a fairly prestigious um, boarding school. Um, I don't know where it stands in the English boarding school system in terms of prestige, but it sounded like it's at least in the upper half. I don't know. May I, uh, yeah. and I, maybe Hagulian can speak to that, uh, but mm. before he does, uh, now, when you say eccentric, you mentioned he would show up late. Yeah. Are, 
what are there any other specific habits? Is it is it a case where he would he would wear mismatched jackets? I mean, eccentricity <laughs> in that period of time. What what does that mean exactly? Do you have examples? Yeah, I mean, Hugulia might have better ones than I do. I, I just gathered that he was he was sort of a guy that was living in his own. He was sort of living in his own head, sort of detached mm-hmm. from 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 the normal functionings of society. Was what I was what I got out of it. Yeah, seems there's like a perfect. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh, oh yeah, there's one. There's one habit which springs to mind, um, mm-hmm. which was that his father, when he got frustrated when he couldn't find something, um, there was one thing. For, for example, he had a, some kind of piece of wood, um, which is a bit like maybe like worry balls. You know, those mm-hmm. just something he would fiddle with, and this was apparently made specifically for him by a carpenter. Oh. And he had a custom-designed uh, uh, block of skinny, wood. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> He's like the log lady. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And One um, day my log will speak. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and anyway, if he couldn't find this or something else, yeah. he would start to sort of growl. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Like a kind of, yeah. you know, kind of building growl. Interesting. Uh, eventually get kind of like into a, turn into a roar, really. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> it's my log. Where's my log? Yeah. Oh, so, wow. Now, this sounds kind of too bizarre to make up for me. but Yeah, <laughs> it does, right? Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. That's, that's interesting. Now, this Highgate School is north of camden town in london mm-hmm. is this the same one is it is if, this is the school I, I imagine it probably is yeah i would think i would mm. think so he was a, okay. he was a, he went during the week and then came home on the weekends was how that was for him ah yeah. administration history sexual abuse allegations uh, ah yes <laughs> ah yes <laughs> that's a good one as, that's the that's like the second one, item on your wikipedia page. as one does yeah, yeah, yeah. great well, so this is interesting. Uh, let me go down this a little bit. I mean, my God. I mean, it looks, I mean, this is, this is what being uh, an American does to your brain, right? You, yeah. you start reading the history and it's like in April of 1563, right. <laughs> you just go like, what? I mean, you know, an expansion of the school occurred in 1838. <laughs> I mean, like, wow. okay, anyway. Yeah, wow. so this is an old uh, Tony school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, All so right. so he did, he did fairly well there, and he started to get kind of introduced to literature and things like that. Now, there's some preoccupations that Aikman had as a teenager that I want to talk about because I think they're very illuminating for his later careers. Um, he had a couple of different um, complex fantasies in which he, he basically occupied, especially during adolescent years. One was a complicated political daydream involving three or four imaginary nations in East Africa for which he had ceremonies, political systems, transportation systems, etc. So he's playing SimCity in his head, right? Um, there was another one about a, a cultural suburb of London that he called Beaton that had four theaters, one of which he owned and where he would then put on shows that featured him that had, you know, but he, but he figured it all out from like the ticketing system to the pub, the, the public transportation and that sort of thing. Um, and then he just generally would do elaborate transportation planning sort of in his head as, as like a f- fantasizing daydream. 
right? So these are the sorts of, this is the sort of, he's a, he's like a proto urban planner almost like he's thinking at, that's the kind of, the, he thinks at the scale of the municipal or the civic in some way. Um, which is an interesting setup for a writer, right? It's not doesn't immediately make you think, oh yeah, this guy's going to write weird stories. Um, but we, I think we will get there. So um, he graduates from high school um, and is doesn't do anything at first. He he doesn't uh, go on to university. Um, he doesn't. He sort of tries to take up the architecture thing from his father for a little while, but doesn't really pursue it far enough to, to really make a go of it. Um, he does have um, what at the time are delusions about his leadership capabilities. Um, he writes a, um, a philosophical treatise, I think it's in his early 20s, um, called Panacea, which, you know, you're 22, you, you know, and you write a, a treatise that's, you know, is posed to, to explain it all, right? Um, chances are it doesn't really explain all that much, but it does sort of indicate his, his um, tendency to try and put thoughts on paper. Um, it does seem to indicate that he's pretty well read. He's, you know, and, and that's a, a trait that, you know, you can use to characterize him throughout his life. Um, uh, but he's starting to kind of develop these tendencies um, one kind of quote that I think is interesting to to put in the mouth of this kid that comes out of a really good school whose father was successful, but is now kind of crazy. And he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, but he has these, these societal level fantasies. He says, one is born happy or unhappy, just as one is born successful or unsuccessful. So that's sort of his take, one of his takes. Um, he uh, will often talk about, uh, he often referred to like once he got out of Highgate, he was just sort of thrown out into the world to like make it on his own, which is totally not true. <laughs> he was given his father's, he was basically given his father's estate and an allowance. Ah, um, uh, he's uh, one of these Brooklyn yeah. trust fund LARPers. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Uh, right. It's so, so hard for me. Daddy yeah. only gives me $4,000 a month. Right, right, right. So I don't know what the dollar figure was, but apparently it was enough if you, you know, if you really p clipped your coupons, you could get by on. And then he was given this, uh, given the, the home, his father's home to live in uh, called Langdon Lodge. His father had, had, had um, his father had been in surgery and then had never really moved back in, was just kind of bouncing around between the constitutional club and these various other places. Oh, I actually do have it. He was living off of a uh, uh, hundred pounds a week in today's dollars, apparently. So I don't know, that's not a whole lot. Um, but apparently it was enough. He was going to the theater and the opera basically every night and he developed a proclivity Aikman did for Wagner. He was, uh, and we all know what that means. He's clearly a Nazi. Brad, say it after me. Say, <laughs> please, my friend, please say Wagner. Wagner. No, Wagner. see, if I say Wagner, then I'm a Nazi. Wagner. Oh, my God. I know it's Wagner. I, I, I want to apologize for my co-host, Agulian. <laughs> yes. Especially okay. his mom, actually, because his mom is pretty important. Um, Mabel. Mm. 
that yeah. she she was the one who had the, the ambition for him to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she taught him to read, and he could read by the age of four. And um, and she you know she got him into to, to, to writing really. Obviously, I think inspired by by Marsh you know, um, that she had those, those kind of ambitions for him. And uh, she left though. She left the family when he was a teenager. Yes, um, right. His, she his just parents. had enough, basically, of, 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 mm-hmm. of the, the father. Yeah, yeah. 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 They split Can't him. imagine why with the random growling. <laughs> right, right, right. And just... <laughs> and yeah, and they never loved each other anyway. 30 years of age difference, all of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing of note about her, just since we're talking about her, um, she apparently died um, in the bombing of London during world war two. Uh, and, uh, Aikman had was Aikman was the, what, what the, the an attempted biography says is that he was, he was visiting her, but he had gone out for a walk or something when, um, when a, a bomber, you know, a German bomber just unloaded some extra payload or something like that and bombed her house while she was basically sitting there waiting for Robert to come back from his walk. That's what you get for listening to that much of Wagner. I, that's right. So he drew it to you. Now, here's the thing. Aikman did not serve in World War II, even though he would have been of age. And the reason why was he was, uh, he was a conscience, conscientious objector. Um, and he, despite the fact that very few people were full on uh, conscientious objectors. So I th- apparently how this would work was there was like tears. So like you could... You could object on some grounds and get out of like frontline combat duty, but you would still have to go and do something, right? Drive an ambulance, whatever. They would find some some non-combat role for you to do. He was yeah. one of a much smaller group that got out completely. Um, and he, in part, did it with this uh, application letter that relied heavily on um, sort of Christian morality. Um, which is interesting because he doesn't really indicate a strong faith in any other aspect of his life, right? So it's not little, like a little bit of flimflamery here. <laughs> exactly. He used his writing to avoid the Great War, the World War II. Fascinating. Exactly. Exactly. You know what film I watched recently, uh, which is quite good, A Bridge Too Far. Have you seen this? I've never seen that. A cavalcade of talent. Some of the greatest actors of the hmm. 20th century are in this movie. And for some reason, it flew under my radar for a long time. It's, it makes um, Savior Private Ryan look like a cartoon. It's really? very, very good. Huh. Highly what, recommend. Year, what year are we talking? I think it was what, made in the 70s, but it's a World War II film. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. I yeah. will have to check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so he's a, uh, one thing he also relied on in his conscientious, conscientious I can't say that word, objector application. Uh, I can't say those two words together. Um, is he relied, he also referred to his panacea, his philosophical treatise, and basically talked about it, how it was, you know, how much of his discussion in that document was um, about um, sort of nonviolence and and against conflict and things. But apparently when you actually read Panacea, which I did not do, um, admittedly, um, it isn't really about that at all. So he's, he's, you're right, Kevin, very much flim flam to get out of the war. Um, But he might've had other reasons, which we're going to see in other reasons to be out of the war, which we'll see in a little bit. So, um, Let's give him, let's give a little 
so people can maybe picture him. Let's give a little image of what Robert Aikman looked like. This is according to Elizabeth Jane Howard, who would be his intimate uh, and friend and uh, a, a collaborator in, in many ways. <clears throat> Robert was unprepos- un- unprepossessing. What's going on with me, Kevin? He had thick, horn-rimmed spectacles through which his small brown eyes looked out with an almost cynical intelligence. Thick brown hair scraped back from his forehead and held firmly in place with a good deal of brill cream. He had a large but not insensitive mouth and a pale, almost colorless complexion. He had beautiful hands and a voice whose tone implied with some irony that he thought little of anything apart from the arts. So, um... So yeah, so that's him. He's uh, he's a little bit of a uh, he, you know he he was definitely involved in the art scene. And before he even had any success in the writer in, as a writer, he sort of posed himself in that world. He was going to the theater all the time. There was a place he would go to called uh, Covent Gardens, um, Covent, which Covent, Covent Garden. Okay. Yeah. See, yeah. man, this, you, I'm, who knows what I'm pronouncing? I went over to London many years ago to prepare yeah. for the podcast. Yes. <laughs> we're going to go, we're going to go to London someday, Brad. They're going to do one of my plays again over there. Okay. We're going to go over, we'll do an Art of Darkness episode while we're there. It's going to be great. All and right. I'm uh, into it. We will mispronounce every single neighborhood in. No, I, <laughs> in I will. I, I will, and you can just roll your eyes. That, that's like, fine, man. You're that. good. You're yeah, good. Yeah. You're good. You're doing. You're doing a great job, man. <laughs> I did do the Wagner one on purpose, though, because I knew that would drive you. <laughs> Wagner the dog here with Brad. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> um. Uh. So okay. So there. This is something interesting about the whole. Um. Wait. You said it's Covent. 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 It's where the opera, I think the opera's there. It's a very central. Yeah. Okay. It's right in the West End. The theater's all around there. It's, it's a really central part of, of uh, London. It sounded really cool in this discussion. It sounds like it's like, uh, it was, I mean, he was going there to the theater all the time, but it ended up becoming this like social club that he was participating in almost. It was very cool. Um, One guy that he came to be friends with there is somebody named, I'm going to mispronounce this because I've never heard anybody say any of these, uh, half of these words, Count Pataki de Montauk. Have you ever heard of this guy? Sounds like a mouthful. Okay. He is, is he he is, is he Polish? Uh, he was, I believe he was born in Polish. Yeah. Yes, he was. He, he was a Uh pretender to the Polish throne. So it was probably (laughs) Potocki then. Potocki. Oh, okay. Okay. See, I figured I was pronouncing that part wrong. Um, for sure. Okay. So he's a, you know, if you go on Wikipedia, he's described as he's got a great sort of slug line about who, you know, one sentence description of what he is. Poet, polemicist, pagan, and pretender to the Polish throne, which I think is great. Um, he sounds like Kanye lyrics. Right. Right. Um, he was, he, uh, and I just wanted to sideline talk about him for a second because he's interesting. Um, this guy was, uh, in 1932, was imprisoned for six months because he brought a manuscript to a publisher. Um, he'd done these erotic translations of Rabelais, um, and the publisher, like, knew they were obscene and turned him in. Um, one of them, one of them was a, a poem that he'd either written or he'd inserted in amongst the others called Lament for Sir John Penis. <laughs> he's just this crazy dude. Um, he was, but he did have support from from uh, uh, Virginia from the the Wolfs, Virginia Wolf, and her husband, and, and some others. But um, you know, he was also a he was a big su- 
supporter of um, Sir Oswald Mosley. He believed in the protocols of the elders of uh, Zion um, and that sort of thing. He started a journal called um, The Right Review, uh, which Aikman thought was, quote, a fun read. Uh, and it included the first issue of The Right Review, included a statement of uh, Patotsky's position, call it a manifesto, I suppose, um, and I'm going to give you a quote. Just I, I think this guy's great. I'm going to do an episode on him one day. It is our, our aim to show that the divine right of kings is the sanest and best form of government, being in the last resort the only fount of power and consequently of human life. We intend to prove that such government is intensely beneficial to the whole human race, including the lowest races of mankind. In this way, we hope to provide the right wing with a living ideology. Somebody's been listening to Curtis Yarvin. I was going to say, I think Curtis <laughs> Yarvin might have been listening to Count Patachki. Um, so, so anyway, he's, that's one of the people in the, in the, the sort of the young, we're talking, you know, Aikman's 20 something. This is one person that he knows and is in his, his, you know, social milieu. Um, now, there's another thing that starts going on too. And we're going to talk about this more in the After Dark episode. So um, Aikman writes these supernatural stories. Um, they're descendants of what were called ghost stories. Now we're familiar with ghost stories as being, that's what you tell around the campfire. But if you want to be specific about it, it's actually a genre of literature. Um, and, you know, there are people like Oliver Onions, some other people I've highlighted on, on, on the Twitter over the last couple of weeks um, who are writing effectively ghost stories. They were kind of gothic. Some of them had kind of Victorian aesthetics to them. Um, Aikman was in that lineage, but wasn't strictly writing those kinds of stories. They weren't, maybe they, they, they were maybe about ghosts, right? They, it wasn't clear what was always happening in a Robert Aikman story. Um, but Aikman was very interested in the paranormal and the supernatural unlike a lot of writers in this, in these sort of genres, like we saw purportedly HP Lovecraft was just a stark materialist atheist, right? Um, that is probably the more common perspective for a writer in these, in these genres. Aikman actually believed in this stuff or wanted to believe he would join. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in the after dark. He would join the society for psychical research, which is a entity started in England, still exists, has existed for like 140 years investigating ghosts and psychics and, and all those kinds of things. So we're going to have some fun with that in the after dark. Um, so Aikman joins that in 1939 and is, is somewhat involved with it for a number of years. Um, another thing he gets involved in, and this is probably his biggest thing, um, other than, this is what he's most known for, other than writing, is something called the Inland Waters Association. So um, the Inland Waters Association, so <laughs> I guess the thing to understand is like, there's all these canalways, man-made canals um, in England. Um, and yes, and pe many people actually have boats that they live on yes. in these canals and they move yes. them around the country. It's quite fascinating. Yes, yes. Now, Robert Aikman is instrumental to the fact that that is actually still happening. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So it had, that was a, that was a kind of a way of life in, you know, up until the late 19th century into the 20th century, but with the war and the changing nature of commercialism, uh, of commerce, there was the, 
canals had sort of fallen into disrepair. Many of them were owned by the railway um, or the various railroad companies, and they had sort of let them fall apart. And it was a kind of a, a lifestyle that was sort of passing. Now, Robert Aikman, remember, he's a boy who grew up fantasizing about transportation systems, right? <laughs> this, is a, this is a thing that he lo- he's fascinated by and he loves. He decides to... Um, he decides along with this guy, Tom uh, Rolt, who um, is another writer, but wrote a, a, was a writer who kind of at times focused on stories sort of set in the canalway system. They, they form this association called the Inland Waters Association. It starts very, very, very small um, and actually grows to be a pretty major effort. Aikman, would, his second biography, autobiography, was all about what his time in the Inland Waters Association, making this effort to restore the inland waterways, canals, and so forth um, of England, uh, the boating lifestyle. You know, he, he loved all of this stuff, right? Maybe, maybe I could jump in. Yeah, please, please tell all us. Right. Talk about um, that. Yeah, how, how did he get into that? How did he meet Rolls? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I think in sort of late, I think early 40s, maybe, uh, Aikman read a uh, book by Rolt called Narrowboat, mm-hmm. which was an account of one of Rolt's um, kind of journeys, canal journeys with his wife. And the canals at that time were kind of in disrepair and there were parts of the canals which were kind of un- not navigable really. Um, but anyway, Rolt, Rolt was you know, into this. And, and so Aikman was fascinated by this topic really. And he got in touch with Rolt and and of course they they hit it off uh, although they had a few differences of opinion and as you say they they created um it was actually i think in inland waterways association oh i'm sorry yeah yeah right yeah waterways yep. um i think it was 1946 i believe that was their first meeting was 1946 yeah right right yeah um so they created it and uh Aikman was kind of a bossy character <laughs> <laughs> he wanted himself to be, you know, he wanted to be the chairman. Uh, Rolt was uh, kind of like his partner, but they didn't see eye to eye on everything. Um, Rolt was a lot. Rolt was a lot more laid. I mean, his contributions were huge, but he seemed like a little bit more of a laid-back character. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they had a few differences of opinion like, politically. I think Rolt. Rolt was also a kind of right winger. But he had a bit more sympathy with, with the working class, uh, which is kind of obvious if you read his, his book, Narrowboat. And he wanted the canals to sort of be commercially viable, really. He wanted them to pay their way. And um, he wanted them to pay their way. And so he, was const- he wanted to concentrate on those canals which um, were commercially viable. But Aikman thought you know every single mile of canal had to be saved right? mm-hmm. so, th- so this eventually led to to a falling out and Rolt was was expelled mm-hmm. uh, by Aikman um, but Aikman was you know he was incredibly hard working uh, in the IWA he, he did most of the writing of the publications I think mm-hmm. and uh, it's interesting in, in his first biography autobiography he says he gives a re- sort of reason why he wanted to set this up this whole, not only the association, but the kind of lifestyle which it led to uh, of kind of regattas and 
journeys on the canals and so on. Mm. And he said he, he conceived of it, or he and his friends really conceived of it as a redoubt, you know, as a fortress in a sense, because he could see around him really uh, England kind of being transformed, especially after the war. I mean, it's accelerated really uh, under the Labour government. Uh, it transformed in ways he didn't like. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he didn't like, you know, the kind of advance of socialism, of bureaucracy, of what he thought of as kind of more conformism and, you know, sort of lowering of ambition as he saw it and, uh, and, and sort of encroachment of industry and, and urbanism really on, mm -hmm. on things. So. And, and the kind of increase of the pace of life, you know, and sort of more, as he saw it, more vulgarity and so on. Yeah. So, so he, he wanted to create this kind of zone, really, this kind of space where something different could, could happen, really. And, it was um, a bit of a fantasy, though, really, right? I mean, they maybe, had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of it, it they did end up having some successes for sure, but I think at least some of his friends, um, some of his in intimate female friends would describe it as like, Aikman wanted, to, Aikman wanted to live in a world where we all floated around on gondolas, you know, and we got around in the, in the Venetian way, sort of, right? It's a little, it's a little unrealistic, but... Um, to be fair though, I think, I think he was pretty lucid mm -hmm. and he was... Well, he was, was certainly a effective. A, it wasn't pie in the sky, but it was right. maybe an unrealistic goal in, in some ways. I think he had like he had like a sort of Oswald Spengler type of you know vision, mm -hmm. right? Where where the, the modern world was just going to kind of advance and everything was going to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And and he didn't he didn't see you know that being preventable really. But he he wanted to kind of carve out a space, I think, where this would be held off some time you know these these the changes would be held up for some time yeah so i think in that sense he was very very lucid really and, and perceptive yeah no I, I think that's i think that's fair and yeah i didn't mean to dismiss dismiss mm. it entirely i think one thing that was sort of interesting about he he had this attitude that he had a very uncompromising attitude so he thought within the iwa and in terms of getting membership and things like that that if you didn't disagree with his vision, his time and energy would be better spent finding people who did agree with him than trying to figure out how to compromise with you, right? It was like, it was like, just get, just get out of the way. You're either, you're on, let's be, let's all be on the exact same page, which is my page. And, <laughs> and if you're not, then, um, then go find another, you know, organization to be a part of or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. May which, I ask uh, Hugulian, uh, uh, can I interject, Brett? No, yeah, okay? absolutely. Yeah, Hugulian, I've always wondered this, uh, and I don't have a sense of it as an American. What is the impression of people who now, today in 2022, live on these boats and move these boats up and down? Is there a culture of this? I mean, what would, is there anything comparable that an, an American could maybe latch on to? Um, well, I think to own a boat like that, and to run it, you have to be fairly well off these days. Mm -hmm. um, now, that wasn't always the case. I mean, I did read somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but in, in the 19th century, uh, when the railways were, you know, kind of coming in, 
then a lot of those canal workers who were just working class people really, you know, they ended up, of course, without a livelihood. And some, some of them ended up living on their boats, kind of like gypsies, you know. And they decorated their boats you know, sort of colorfully, and they just lived on those, kind of traveling around from town to town, you know, picking up work where they could. But uh, in, the, in the sort of more recent times, I mean, it's much more of a, a kind of middle class, upper middle class, maybe hobby, yeah, this mm-hmm, kind yeah, of sure. narrow voting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can, I mean, thanks largely to Aikman, to some extent, Rolt, uh, uh, you can actually navigate the whole of, you know, the UK um, through the canals. Yeah, I briefly stayed adjacent to one. And it's a very particular mood and it ran by this, the pub and it just creates a whole vibe. And then you see these people in their boats. And I just had that kind of fascination of somebody who is like, wow, what a, what a lifestyle. <laughs> How strange is this? <laughs> but are you just going to like move, move along down the line? I mean, it's just very yeah. kind of yeah. uh, unique and interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in the second autobiography that he wrote, it's called the river, the river runs uphill. Aikman um, said some interesting things about canals. Like he, he saw canals as extending green fingers into towns. Mm-hmm. So um, now he was always one for the countryside, really, against the town. He wasn't really a, a fan of towns and cities. Um, and, he, and he writes a bit there about, as you say, the atmosphere, the kind of unique atmosphere, the feeling of being in a slightly different realm, you know, on the canal. Um, and I think this is, you know, we talk about his, his uh, I don't know, his religion, as you were saying, you know, he's not Christian, mm-hmm. but he was definitely kind of religious in, in sensibility. Um, but it was much more that he was you know, kind of fascinated by nature, mm-hmm. um, by mysteries. You know, he was kind of into astrology. Um, yeah, he was sort of a romantic. Uh, is that fair to say, do you think? I think so. Capital R, yeah. Yeah, basically, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, is one thing, um, he has a couple of stories that sort of, because in part of his IWA work, he would go and try to navigate uh, canals, either to f- sort of assess them or just in terms of they would do these opening celebrations and things like that. And then he wrote, some of his stories are around this, this right? Isn't the trains... Is that one? Which one? Um, is it the trains? There's one that is focused on this. I know um, uh, there's one. Uh, there's a story in the compulsory compulsory games uh, volume called um, something a wind. That's that's all about this. Uh, Raising the wind. That's about two guys taking a sort of dilapidated boat uh, up canal to a spot where they're going to repair it, and they they do a, uh, a kind of a, a witchy crone uh, beckons them into this church to do a ritual that will bring the wind and allow them to travel. Um, you know, I haven't read that one, but you've, okay. you've read all the compulsory games stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so it, this would leak into his stories too. Um, and there was uh, the first book that he ever put out, which was um, with Elizabeth Jane Howard. These were two, uh, it was six stories. Each of them wrote three, three stories. Um, there was a story she wrote about being on the canals because she was also involved in, in the IWA. Um, he sort of helped to get her published. And then um, 
she was involved in the IWA. They were lovers. Um, she eventually would leave him and marry uh, Kingsley Amos, which is pretty interesting. It's just sort of, um, it's, a, it's a small world, I suppose. Um, but, you know, kind of maybe to kind of close out the, not cl necessarily close out, but sort of indicate where the IWA stuff went. I mean, it starts with, with Rolt and Aikman, you know, it add, they add a couple of their friends um, and eventually it's got hundreds of members. He's putting on this bulletin all the time. Eventually he's organizing um, an orchestra to travel up and down the, the, now here's one, Kevin, how do I say this? Thames? The Thames? <laughs> the Thames, Brad. I was on mute. I'm just, oh, yes. Sorry. The I know. Thames. I know, oh, I know that. I know that one. <laughs> oh, we've got to get one. You. Oh, okay, okay. You're just torturing us I now. I am. I'm just okay. messing with you. Okay. Um, well, howdy. Can you tell yeah. me how to get to the Thames River? <laughs> so he organized He organized an orchestra to travel up and down the bar to sort of popularize, this, popularize the, the canal waterways. He organized a, um, a fair that was apparently very successful that was partially based on the water where all the boats kind of arrived. He met, uh, he met Queen Elizabeth at one point when they were opening, I believe, the Stratford Canal uh, in the 60s. Um, he had a lock named after him. There's a, I, I think it may, maybe still exists. It does, according to um, the R.B. Russell biography, uh, the Robert Aikman lock. I believe it's on the Upper Avon. Um, and so he was. He, and we don't want to get into. I don't want to get into all of this sort of inter. Uh, you know, the the battles between governmental organizations and all of that. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, but we want to get talk a little bit more about his writing and the rest of his life. But I think I came away from this thinking that if it wasn't for Robert Aikman, there's a very good chance that there would be little to no sort of inland waterways culture there. Is that fair to say, Hagulian? Um, probably, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly if somebody had taken that up, yeah. you know, instead of him, I don't think they would have done it with quite as much gusto. Right, right. Um, and he, he, did, he does kind of boast about it in his autobiography and it's sort of, ironic ways he's talking about when i saved the waterways right, <laughs> right 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 um, yeah there's so, some myth there's some myth making there for sure yeah. um yeah but he did i mean to start an organization from nothing and get hundreds of people involved and and uh, that's that's no mean feat um you know no matter what you're trying to do right. um yeah um, but, the, but the relationship with rolt is kind of interesting because rolt countess e rolt published Mm -hmm. a book of, of his own kind of ghost stories, supernatural stories, I think in the late 40s, and it's called uh, Sleep No More. Mm -hmm. And the, these stories were kind of the theme here was that the stories all took place around kind of in, industrial environments, you know, like mines and boundaries and things like that. And anyway, Aikman hadn't yet written any stories, but... I mean, this is maybe an indication of the kind of relationship they had, but he decided he wanted to try and do better, you know. Than <laughs> right, right. Very so that's how um, We Are for the Dark, you know, the, the, the volume with, with Elizabeth Jane Howard, right, right. Um, who was, I mean, if you don't know who she was, she was a kind of extraordinarily beautiful woman. You can see why Aikman fell for her, really. Um, and Aikman also thought she had some kind of psychic gift Yes. Uh, yeah. And one of the one of the hand small handful of quote unquote supernatural experiences that Aikman had was he saw her in a mirror 
and, and she appeared as an old woman in the mirror. And he sort of at the time asked her if she saw it too. And she said that she did. And so that was like Aikman's, well, that was what Aikman referred to sort of as, as my understanding as his closest brush with the paranormal was this moment where they looked in the mirror and it inspired a story that he wrote called uh, Le Mirror or something like that. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so that was, so yeah, he, he was, that was the love of his life, I think was Elizabeth Jane Howard. He did, he was married to a woman before he met her named Ray. Um, there's some correspondences between in that relationship he had with Ray to his parents' relationship and that it was somewhat on the loveless side, not maybe not to the same degree as his, as Aikman's parents, but um, there was the sense that uh, Aikman, Aikman wasn't really the marrying type. Um, and he, he, he kind of put himself in this situation um, somewhat a marriage of a conven of convenience they never they never had children um but you know it was made problematic for a few reasons one aikman liked women as friends um and as lovers as well so throughout his life he had very few male close male friends and a great number of close female friends so that's one thing that makes a, a, a marriage difficult well, um, that makes sense if your father is the strangest man you've right. ever known you maybe <laughs> right. just yeah. gravitate toward the ladies yeah yep yeah, yep yeah, exactly mm. exactly so he would have a number of he would have a number of love affairs but he would also have just like a lot of women kind of around you know, that he would take to the theater, but there wasn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily romantically entangled with them. But, pretty, but apparently Ray, Ray, you know, kind of didn't object to this. It has yes. a kind of open relationship. Now, I don't know yeah. if she really was happy with that. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, there's a letter. There's actually a letter that Ray writes to Elizabeth Jane Howard that um, I actually had it here, but it was something to that effect of like, yes, I understand what's going on here. And, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, not necessarily excited about it, but she, she certainly knew, she certainly knew that Robert was stepping out. Um, so wandering the canals. Yeah, so exactly. There you go. Mm -hmm. Wandering mm -hmm. the canals with Robert Aikman. <laughs> Aikman yeah. actually mentioned something about children in his autobiography, the first one. Oh, that, yes. um, yeah, that uh, he was writing in the 60s, late 60s, and he was saying um, that children today have placed so many demands on their parents that it's not worth it. Uh, yeah. Um, that's how he saw things. Now, maybe that was a bit of cope. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> um, right. But there was another, there was another um, acquaintance of his who claimed, I can't remember who it was, but who claimed that he hated children. He actively hated them. Yes. So... Um, so there was a kind of like a definitely a dark side to Aikman, you know, kind of yeah. unpleasant side to him. Yeah. Not the only side, I think. Yeah, and I, that's this is probably a good segue is to get into what's the what we'll call pro the problematic Robert Aikman. Um, he wasn't just friends with this uh, pretender to the Polish throne and thought that he was a fun guy. Um, he was. I think it's fair to say that he was an elitist. Uh, I don't think even he would have disagreed with that term. Um, uh, you know, he he kind of appreciated in various writings hereditary principles rather than election. I think he was maybe maybe calling him a monarchist is is a little bit too far, but it's not that far off of the mark. Um, he 
he believed that voters should have to pass a general knowledge test and own property before they vote, which uh, not everybody disagrees with that, I don't think. Um, uh, and he had, he was, I think it's also fair to say that he was a fascist sympathizer. Um, he, uh, his favorite film is by Lenny, I'm, I am not mispronouncing this on purpose, Lenny Reifenstahl. Is that Riefenstahl? Riefenstahl. Yeah, yeah, his favorite film. I was was exaggerating. (laughs) The the, the blue light by her. Um, For people who don't know, you could do a lot worse than appreciate the filmmaking of Lenny Riefenstahl. She's somebody who's never seen it. Yeah. Well, you. She. She made Hagulin. What was the will? Yeah. The will. Is that the the, will? Right. Yeah. But she. She did. Was that the where she did the sports? uh, Is that the sports one? No, no, Triumph of the Will is about um, Hitler's trip. It's the Nuremberg Rally, right? Nuremberg Rally, yeah, that's it. Yeah, she she also filmed the Berlin Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, The Blue Light, it's actually a really good film. You can watch it on YouTube, I think. Mm -hmm. It's about um, a woman who lives kind of in the mountains and and the villagers down below say she's a witch and the woman is played by Rufus Stahl herself and she, she's, she, she was very beautiful at that time mm-hmm. um in sort of the, the I think early 30s like 31 um and anyway there's some kind of um material up there some kind of crystals which emit blue light and the men from below I think in the village become kind of entranced by this and they start wandering up i think they they fall to their deaths or something like that right so so this is why the, the villagers think that she's a witch um but but for eggman um for him you know that the witch character or whatever you want to call her sorceress was a sympathetic character you know and he he saw the villagers as a kind of sort of ignorant masses you know um who you know didn't understand this this mysterious power so yeah. so yeah that was why why he was i think so so taken by that film. yeah well and he was he was i mean i think he was it sounded like he was infatuated with her as a person he would write her letters and she would send him photographs and things like that he he also apparently managed to um arrange for himself a private screening of triumph of the will um so Lenny yeah. is going to be a banger episode. <laughs> she lived to be 101 years old. Yeah, she only yeah. died in 2003. Yeah. She's the a really arch example of people who have, you know, you sort of have to separate her her politics and, and all of mm-hmm. that from her contribution to the film art. Right. People really wrestle with her and uh, Olympia still influences, Olympia. called Olympia, mm-hmm. uh, the way that, sports are are sort of presented and everything it's like it's lovely yeah yeah yeah. and i don't i haven't seen any of those films and from the the little reading i did on him it did sound like she was technically brilliant she was uh, she was a heavy filmmaker yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely um some other things about aikman and his politics um you know it's not he was he was a Zionist. So, you know, I think anybody who's going to, he declared himself a Zionist. So I think there's, you can't, you know, pin the fact that just because he likes the blue light and was in love with Lenny, that he was a Nazi. Um, But at the same time, he also was self-proclaimed pro-Franco 
he was inspired by, he found Mussolini inspiring. Um, and so it's kind of tricky. I don't know. It's tricky. I don't know that it's tricky to locate him necessarily. He doesn't fit. He wouldn't uh, survive, you know, modern Twitter. Uh, actually, maybe he'd, he'd be, be fine. He'd be purged. Well, that is an interesting, <laughs> yeah. uh, we yeah. don't need to dwell too much on this, but is no. there uh, some sort of philosophical incoherence between fascism and Zionism? Uh, not necessarily. No, no, no. no. I, 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 Nazi, mean, I was so, Nazism and Zionism potentially, I would say, well, are at odds with each other. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Very um, interesting. Well, yeah. Was, was he, uh, so he, he'd be a Tory, right? I mean, he was a, I, su- I suppose like a conservative. that's right. Yeah. 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 I think there's, there's, there's an extra complicating factor, though, is that mm. um, he was kind of skeptical about a sort of cult of masculinity. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a story in the Wine Dark Sea where another kind of nameless protagonist ends up on a Greek island where he's been, like a, like a small Greek island out in a bay um, where he's been warned not to go. He, he sort of steals a boat and ends up on there. And he meets these three beautiful women who turn out to be sorceresses. And, and it seems that they somehow survived from, from ancient times. And there's a kind of, there's a speech that they give where they condemn the Greeks uh, as poisoned by masculinity. Hmm. Um, so, so it's kind of interesting what Aikman Aikman's attitude really to, to men actually is kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. And he's certainly, I mean, he's certainly favored the company of women. Um, and well, and maybe we can talk about that for a minute too. It's, it's his, his handling of women in his writing um, can seem, I think at a surface level reading to be uh, depending on if you pick up um, merit, the story marriage, and that's the only Aikman you've read, you might come across him thinking him, maybe not quite misogynistic, but one of these guys who can't write women, right? Uh, But then if you pick up um, Hand in Glove or another short story where a woman or women are are more the main characters, he seems like he's handling them from a writer's standpoint very well and with, with all due, you know, respect and admiration. So it's, it's, he, he's interesting in that regard. He has a, he has, but at the same time, he, at one point he says that they should hire, um, there's a position open at the IWA after it's grown for a while where he says, um, you know, we need to hire somebody from this, for this position within the, within the organization, we should hire a woman because we won't have to pay her as much. So there's, right. which yeah, so it's a little, it's a little bit complicated, right? Saying the quiet part out loud, right, 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 right. right. Well, I mean, don't you, love you, that. No, you, yeah. you mentioned that story, the trains earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an early one, and uh, that has yeah, female main characters, protagonist, and her friend, mm-hmm. and it also kind of showcases his love for the countryside. Um, I think it's set in the Yorkshire Moors. Okay. And it, it kind of, when I discovered this story, it sort of reminded me instantly of a, of a painting. I mean, uh, listeners can, can look this up if they like. Uh, it's a painting by uh, someone called James Walker Tucker, 1936, a painting called Hiking. He was one of the British realists of the 30s. Um, that was a kind of movement which just sort of vanished really after the 30s. Um, 
And yeah, it's about two women, young women, sort of hiking in the Yorkshire Moors. And uh, one thing that sticks in my mind as well is the wonderful descriptions of the weather in that in that story. That, and and it's, it's remarkable, really, because it was one of the first stories he wrote. But he, you know, he sort of he gets out, out of the blocks, you know, very fast, <laughs> we might mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a wonderfully evocative story. Um, and it seems to me that you know he he writes the women there very very well. I think. Um, that the, they are distinct characters, you know, the, the different types of women recognizably. Right. One of them is rather kind of the protagonist actually, she's a bit insecure because the other one she thinks is, is prettier and sexier than her mm-hmm. and, um, and, and so on. So that the trains is, is uh, yeah, one of these stories which, which showcases various, you know, Aikman-esque elements. And another early story, is your tiny hand is frozen, yeah. Um, which deals with really the telephone. I think um, this is kind of what I would call it, so technological uncanny, and about a character who, he, like many of Aitman's characters, are a lonely figure, a man who seems to have split up with his his uh, girlfriend, living now in the flat which they used to share, and he begins to be plagued by his telephone. Um, which is not even his phone, actually, but his girlfriend's phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, wow, how, how prescient is that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds like yes. Go on, Hagulian. Very interesting. Oh, well, um, it starts ringing up at, at sort of odd times. You know, it could be in, in the early hours in the morning, and there's nobody on the line. Nobody picks up. Um, and this passes for some months, but eventually, it turns out that there is somebody on the line. And it's Ooh. a woman, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a woman, and he ends up in these long conversations with her, and she seems to be, you know, very taken with him. But he finds that when he puts the phone down, after some time has passed, you know, it could be hours you know, they've been talking. He can't really remember what they were talking about. Um, hmm. And then it's more strange things start to happen because he starts to. Well, he basically she phones him always. He doesn't know what her number is, and so he starts staying at home. He's got a job, I think, of a translator. He's translating, as I remember, he's translating pornographic manuscripts or something uh, <laughs> from from Dutch to English. As I recall, uh, he starts staying at home because he's so terrified of missing a call. You know, and that might be the last call from this, right. this girl. Right. Um, but then the, the phone continues to plague him because people start calling up, asking for this corporation. And he doesn't know this corporation. He says, I, I don't know anything about it. You know, right. Own someone else. But they keep doing it, you know. Um, anyway, I'm not going to spoil the story, but yeah, it, it just is a fantastic um, exploration of how just a simple object like the telephone can be yeah. kind of uncanny. Um, yeah. Yeah, he had, he definitely, he's, we've already kind of touched on it. He certainly had reservations and, and fears about technology. I want to give you two quotes that he wrote, not in stories, but elsewhere uh, that relate to this. One, uh, quote, the modern conflict is between man and the machine for mastery. At present, the machine is winning in every department of life and thought television being without doubt its most dangerous and far-reaching victory he would never own a television despite dying in 1981 he would never own a television or a radio another quote from him every time you take a television into your house 
Every time you buy a washing machine or a motor car, instead of a Shakespeare or a guitar, you bring 1984 nearer. Right. So he, he was, he was certainly caught. He was certainly conscious and, and concerned about, um, there was also this interesting, one of the later apartments he lived in the Barbican was apparently he lived next door to the telephone exchange and it was just constantly like, but, you know, making all the noises it did, uh, you know, in, in the, in, in the older phone systems where you had operators and things like that. And apparently it drove him absolutely crazy. Um, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, which and, I thought and was the, the Barbican. Yeah. yeah. The Barbican is a kind of bush list. Uh, monster really yeah <laughs> well it's kind of forced to go there. yeah yeah and they they sort of partially he'd been lured in by these false promises that they were going to build theaters and everything and then it turned into just being like these concrete projects what we would call it over right. just yeah terrible. i can't imagine yeah you know, aikman in the barnacle it's just right. unimaginable really but, yeah um what else was that oh about the machine thing yeah he kind of had an apocalyptic vision of the machine Really, and its role in, in history, which he, he said he took from Samuel Butler, which was a novelist hmm. in the 19th century, that hmm. Butler saw the machine as a, in an evolutionary development. In other right. words, it was going to take over from human beings. You know, just, yeah. um, it was going to replace us, essentially. Yeah, now that's that's a that's a commonly held view now, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, but <laughs> you know, Butler saw this uh, over a yeah. hundred years ago. Yeah, the the scary thing is now that some of some of us seem to be cheering it on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems to be some encouragement. Um, so let's talk about let's talk a little bit about where kind of his writing. Uh, I want to kind of position what his kind of career ended up being because he was kind of a late bloomer in terms of actually sitting down to write. I mean, he wrote Panacea, his 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 treatise very early, and then it took him some number of years to actually sit down and start cranking out the stories that we've come to know as Aikman-esque, these strange stories that have that have you know kept his name alive. Um, but once he kind of got going into the 60s, um, he was starting to get some attention, partially because he um, he was collecting, um, he became the editor of an annual series of uh, ghost stories, basically, where he was bringing, he would select the stories that would go into it from everybody from D.H. Lawrence to Edgar Allan Poe to the, you know, to the, the speculative fiction writers of his day. And then he would always put one of his stories in there. Um, I think it's the Fanta. I had it right here. The Fanta. Um, oh, anyway, it's it was a it was an annual sort of anthology collection of of you know sort of spooky stories, if you will. Um, but all, often from you know very very well known and writers that are that are still read today. So it wasn't it was sort of uh, it was sort of a couple notches past the pulp. I would say. Um, and then eventually he did start getting published in America, really starting in the in the 70s. Um, he started getting picked up by um, Arkham House, which was the publishing house that um, uh, kind of came out of the um, the attempts to further H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's, you know, work after he had passed. Um, and in 70, um, let's see, 1975, he was actually invited to the World Fantasy Conference um, to be given an award for best short fiction. Um, this this was this happened in Providence, so this is like Lovecraft is now kind of come come. Though it's long after Lovecraft's death, he's kind of come into renown. Um, 
Aikman doesn't end up traveling to the United States for this. It was his sort of closest he ever came to visiting um, America. But he uh, he got a. I thought this was funny. He got his trophy, so they shipped him his trophy for best short fiction that year. And the trophy was this bulbous caricature of H.P. Lovecraft. And so he sort of broke it off of the plaque and threw that away and just kept the plaque that said, you know, <laughs> World Fantasy Conference Best Short Short, short Fiction. I thought that was, that was charming. Um, he, uh, 76, he, um, he was a guest of honor at the British Fantasy Society. Um, and, you know, he, 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 at this point, he had had enough success writing and he'd had a success with the IWA that his sort of, his snobbishness had sort of reached, uh, um, you know, its its ultimate state, and so he was a little bit overdressed. He looked down his nose a little bit at people. You know, if people asked him, "Hey, what other writers of contemporary short story or contemporary ghost stories or that kind of thing should I read?" He would say he would dismiss the whole thing. Um, so he ends up he ends up. It, it, it's funny because he was such a he was such a, a learned you know, he's such a well-read guy. He was very, very intelligent. He was an accomplished writer. Um, but because he was writing in this, in this genre, mostly because there was nowhere else to put him, um, he sort of ended up, his contemporaries ended up being to some degree sort of pulp writers. And I think I got the sense kind of reading between the lines that this was a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if I want to say disappointment, but it was an awkward position for him to be in, right? It didn't naturally fit his sort of vibe. Um, now, 1980 comes along. He's, he's publishing short story collections to varying degrees of, of, of success throughout the 60s and 70s. Um, as we hit 1980, um, he gets cancer. Um, and there's this interesting thing that sort of happens. So, like I said, we're going to talk more about his interest, a little bit more about his interest in the spooky. We're going to talk about the Society for Psychical Research and some other things in the After Dark. That's patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Um, but one thing we can say here is he gets cancer and he doesn't get it treated um, he does the what is what Steve Jobs did, you know. He does the he does sort of the he does the sort of alternative medicine thing. Yeah. He goes the homeopathic route. He gets injections of mistletoe at one point, which I don't. I mean, who knows? Maybe that could work. I have no idea. Um, but one thing I want to kind of position here. So I, he did. I ended up kind of, and this was interesting one interesting topic for me. This is the only. Ep- this is an episode we did where I started knowing almost basically nothing about him. So I ended up sort of pushing against him because I felt like he was pretentious and elitist, but I also felt I, I, I really did appreciate him and liked him at the end. And I think one way we can see this is, you know, throughout his life, after he divorces Ray, he has all of these women friends um, and he could be a little controlling or he could be a little, um, jealous like you know he would have a female friend that he wasn't intimate with and then she would get married and he would cut her off completely which maybe is the appropriate thing to do but he would have he had these sort of friction there was friction in these relationships he had one other thing he did is he kept all of these women separate it wasn't like he was friends with a whole group of women he was friends with these individual women who he had a one-to-one relationship with but as he started to get sicker and sicker in 1980 and into 1981, these women, including Elizabeth Jane Howard, um, 
who had left him, um, they started kind of to take turns taking care of him. And at this point, they all started to meet each other, which I thought was really interesting. Some of these women he'd known for decades, some of them like Gene Richardson, who was his closest, the closest thing he had to a, a partner or a girlfriend or whatever you want to say for the last sort of phase of his life. Um, they all started to meet each other. And I just think this is sort of, you know, you think about um, a person dying, you know, he was 68 years old, a person dying with no children or no family, um, not married, um, parents not around, no siblings, you know, what happens to them? And uh, it was just interesting to see that these women kind of cared about him enough or, or, or were um, friends enough with him that they came to look out for him. Um, and that made me think that he really must have had something, um, a, a charisma, which I think is, I think is true. And I, I want to, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more, but I kind of maybe want to close the narrative of his life with, with something that I think is uh, really quite lovely. This was from, um, uh, I believe this is from, uh, yeah, this is from Gene Richardson, who was quite a bit younger than him. It was sort of his last quote unquote girlfriend. <clears throat> when we went to a house and a garden, we had to be open to everything and we had to see everything. Her and Aikman, she's saying. There aren't many people who go around looking at all those showcases. He loved the odd little details. I suspect that some of the details in his stories, the odd names, came from things he had noticed. It was the same when we went around a church or churchyard. He would be reading all the tombs and epitaphs. Robert's attitude towards everything creative, whether it was books, houses, or films, or opera, or ballet, was not quite the modern one where people are often doing something else at the same time where they don't take it too seriously. Robert gave all of himself to everything like that he went to. He gave, I sometimes felt, to artistic things the same level of dedication that he put into writing. He put all of himself into his writing and he paid the ardor or the composer the same compliment. He put all of himself into their work. He opened up to whatever it had to offer. And that seems like a pretty cool way to live to me. So I admire that and many other things about him. Um, he did die in 1981 um, from, from cancer um, in a homeopathic hospital, never having really sought what we would consider proper treatment. Um, but, you know, might have gotten to him anyway. He apparently was kind of concerned about chemotherapy. He didn't want to lose his hair. Um, but yeah, that's... That's it. He had very detailed instructions, as you can imagine, for his funeral, what, were to, what was to happen to his things. All of his friends got something bequested to them, whether it was a book or a piece of furniture or whatever it was. Um, yeah. And that's, that's the life of Robert Aikman. I think that was great. I yeah. have two things to add from the Wikipedia that I think might be of interest okay. that I've been looking yeah. at. Yeah. Uh, Aikman has a blue plaque at 11 Gower Street, which is right near the British Museum, an area yep. that I know very well in Bloomsbury. That, that was his apartment for years and years and years, where he did his first writing and where he basically launched. That was the offices, the early offices of the, of the Inter, Inter, Inland Waterways yes. Association. Yes, and it appears that the, the blue plaque was put up there by the Inland Waterways Association. Okay. Uh, and there's a quote from him in response to receiving a World Fantasy Award. He wrote this, may I? Yeah, absolutely. He said, I believe in what the Germans term Erfurt, 
Reverence for things one cannot understand. Faust's error was an aspiration to understand and therefore master things which by God or by nature are set beyond the human compass. He could only achieve this at the cost of making the achievement pointless. Once again, it is exactly what modern man has done. I believe in life after death, and I decline to particularize upon the meaning of the words because of all futile and reductionist attempts at definition, this is the most idle. Most of my stories aim at universal themes, however difficult it may be to attain them. Mm-hmm. Very okay. cool. Yeah, well, cool. let's let's wind down with the classic Art of Darkness question for our friend Hagulian. Hagulian, thank you for joining the pod. Friend yes. of the show. We're very grateful. And uh, I will put a link to your bird website account in the show notes at artofdarkpod.com. Hagulian, what do you think Mr. Aikman would be doing now if he was still kicking? Um, I don't know. I think he would be kind of disgusted with the world, first of all. <laughs> but probably he'd still be writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he would be writing. He did write um, a couple of novels. Uh, one was <coughs> The Late Breakfasters, uh, which was before, really, he became famous for the, for the, the strange stories in the mid-60s. It was a sort of a um, comedy of manners a little bit, wasn't it? Or Yeah, kind of a bit out of, out of his usual yeah. kind of, um, line, really. Mm-hmm. And the other one is called The Model, um, which is set in Tsarist Russia. I haven't read that, actually. But he had a very high opinion of it. He thought it was perhaps the best thing he'd ever done. Mm. It was published in the, in the later 80s. Um, but, I mean, if, if people want to get into it, then you could do worse than, than the audiobooks. Like I said, the Reese Shearsmith audiobooks, mm-hmm. which... Uh, I found invaluable, really, um, because I was sort of getting quite into Aikman when Arthur's child was born. Ah. Didn't have a lot of time just to sit, sit down with a book, but I could yeah. listen to the audio book um, yeah. while I was looking after the baby. Um, and so, I think I think yeah. these stories are particularly well suited to audiobooks. They're short stories, first of all, so you can kind of take them, you know, in one go. But also the the atmosphere of them, I think, is particularly good when they're well-read. So Right, yeah. And Shea Smith does a, a bang-up job, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are three books, uh, three collections that he did. I think it's uh, The Wine Dark Sea, um, The Unsettled Dust, and Cold Hand in Mine. Um, there is another book which was put out by, I think it's a Faber, uh, a few years ago, which is Dark Entries, which contains a few classic stories as well. And then there was the Com- Compulsory Games um, uh, collection, which came out, I think, about four years ago, yeah, which is also good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's not a bad book he's ever, he's ever been put out, really, uh, under Aikman's name. Um, that all of them are, are great. Mm. Um, so you can start anywhere, really. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I think maybe he'd have an Anon account posting, posting return <laughs> stuff, maybe monarchy, <laughs> standing the monarchy. Standing the monarchy might be. Yeah. 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 Who knows? Very I mean, interesting he, fellow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's all I've got. Um, hey. Yeah. Hey, we're going to come gonna back get, for the, get after, the dark. after Dark, for sure. Yes, Theremin yes. noises, After Dark, <laughs> for the Patreon <laughs> subscribers. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Brad, great job. Gullian, thank you for coming on the show again. We'll have you back. Uh, yeah, Brad, any final great. words? Okay, because uh, I'm going to no. finish this with a, with a moan. You ready? Yeah. I lost. 
<laughs> Your William Aikman moan. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Hagulian. We'll see you on the Bird website. Yep. Thank you very much, boys. Absolutely. Thank you. Please Thank subscribe you. to his Substack. Go to his uh, Twitter account and uh, subscribe. All right. Take care, y'all. See you in the Bye after dark. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.